Today's scripture reading is from Matthew 1, 1 and 16, and Luke 1, 35 to 38. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative, and behold, your relative Elizabeth, and her old age has also conceived a son and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren for nothing will be impossible with god and mary said behold i am the servant of the lord let it be to me according to your word and the angel departed from her we are uh and have been in a series on advent but i got good news for you all today actually is we're actually in now, officially, the season of, of Advent. I've been trying to argue for weeks, though, that we are allowed to, as Christians, celebrate Advent at all times. And the reason why is the word Advent in Latin just means to wait on the arrival of the king, to wait with expectation for the king. And if we believe, if Christians believe that the promise of the story of Jesus is that he is going to right the wrongs of the world, if he's going to fix things, if, if the brokenness that we see every day all the time is going to be healed and renewed by him, then we can, as Christians at all times, wait with expectation for him. In other words, you can live an Advent life. You can always live expecting Christmas and waiting for Christmas to happen. And we've been doing that looking at the first couple verses of the first chapter of Matthew. We've been looking at Jesus' genealogy, and what's been surprising, as we've been saying every week, is that Jesus' genealogy is filled with five, not one, but five different women whom, if in all ancient Near East genealogies, women were never put in to these things. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is, why? Why is that happening? And today, we get to the very last name in the genealogy, and it's a woman, it is Mary. Why would Jesus put his mother in a genealogy when no other ancient Near East male would have done so? What's he trying to tell us about his nature and character? That's what we have to ask, and you're only going to get the answer if you approach this story in a, in a completely new way. Let's look at three things here. We're going to look at the promise of the incarnation, the problem of the incarnation, and the power of the incarnation. The promise the problem, the power. So first, let's look at the promise. Of all Christian passages in the Bible about, the, about Christmas, if you want the one that gets into the most specificity about what is happening in the incarnation, you found it. It's right here. It's verse 35. This verse might be the most important verse to what the Christian life means when it comes to the incarnation because it goes into the very details of what's happening. And it's breathtaking. And it, just to set the stage, verse 35, uh, Mary had just asked, what's about to happen to me? And the angel is trying to explain to most scholars believe Mary could not have been any older than 14 years old. And this angel is trying to explain to her what's about to happen. 
And she had just said, how is this possible? And he says this, he says, in verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and oh yeah, by the way, uh, this, this Son of God, Jesus, is going to be in your belly. That's what he says to her. And I've, I've tried to this week, I've tried to um, put myself in her shoes. You should try to do the same thing. Imagine you're like to an angel, heavenly being, hey, so what's about to happen to me? And the being says, well, you know, overshadow you, power of the most high, uh, you know, is going to be on you. What do you think your reply is going to be? You're probably going to be, oh, thank you so much. That explains everything to me. I now know exactly what's going to happen. No, you're not going to be able to do that. And yet what's happening in this very moment is the Trinity is, is both contained and explained. Look at, look at the text again. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High God is going to be overshadowing you. And by the way, the child born to you is the Son of God. You have the Trinity there. And yet for her, that still didn't make sense. Why? Because she didn't have the categories that we have. And frankly, if we're, on, if we're honest, the terms being used are hard to understand. What does come upon you mean? What does overshadow you mean? Now, here's, here's where our modern lenses is not helpful, because when we hear those words, most modern people think there's some sort of sexual connotation going on there. And scholars are in agreement that's not that what's happening. That clearly God in Genesis can create without <laughs> sex. And if you do word studies, the, the word studies here, for instance, the word come upon is actually in Hebrew the same word where God's glory comes down and rests on the tabernacle in Exodus chapter 40. And the word overshadow, it means to cover, it means to envelop. It's the word used in the Old Testament. It's the word where God's glory uh, comes down in the glory cloud. His kind of glory comes down and his presence is in and among us. And so before your eyes glaze over and you say, well, what does this mean? This is what the angel's trying to get at. In, in, in like little bits and pieces, the angel's trying to say, Mary, something so marvelous, something so magnificent, something so mysterious is about to happen that the presence of God that normally resides in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, where nobody can get in touch, nobody could actually walk in there without dying— the, this this uh, God who, what, it, you know, mostly showed up in a pillar of cloud to overshadow you. This God is going to reside in you, and your lifeblood is going to give life to the author of life. That's what the, that's what the incarnation's about. That your body is going to hold the one who holds all things together. And if if right now you're like, I, my mind, I can barely get my mind around what's going on here. If that's how you feel, and this is after hundreds of years of church history trying to help us conceive of this, imagine you're Mary. I'm convinced that Mary had no idea when the angel answered this, had no idea what he was actually saying. Because she didn't have the category. She didn't know what he was talking about. She was a teenager. Probably she was thinking, if I was her, she's probably thinking, how am I going to explain this to mom and dad? How, how, am I, how, am, how is my betrothed husband ever going to believe me? How is my community, who's going to believe me at all? And before we get, start talking about that, let, let me just point this out before we move on. The promise dwelling here, it's less about a statement about necessarily how this is possible. It's more a statement that it's possible, that, that God is not going to stay distant. That God is not going to 
uh, stay away. If you want the, the narrative driving force of the entire Old Testament, and, and then actually I would argue the entire narrative driving force of our current culture, the questions lay underneath sort of everybody's life is asking, how is this going to be fixed? Old Testament, who's going to make things right? How are things going to go? How do we know that God actually loves us and cares about us and that he's actually good? All those questions boil down to and are answered by the incarnation. That's, what's, that's what we see here. And that's actually, by, by the way, in 1961, uh, when the Russian astronaut Yuri Gargarin, when he went up uh, into outer space, first human to do so, and he came back, he kind of tongue-in-cheekly said, I didn't see God out there, maybe there's not a God. C.S. Lewis wrote a very short and, and, and not very popular essay responding to Yuri, basically saying, listen, that's a terrible way to think about God. Because if there is a God, look, this is the quote, looking for him by exploring space is like reading all of Shakespeare's plays in the hope that you're going to find Shakespeare. What Lewis is trying to point out is this, is that uh, the only way for a character inside a Shakespearean play to, 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 to ever see Shakespeare, he would have to have written himself into the play. If you want the high-class version of this, uh, this past week I watched um, this, this amazing refined piece of, of art called Free Guy with uh, Ryan Reynolds. Uh, he plays this computer program person named Guy, and he's, he's, he's you know, he's, he's, been, he's a bunch of code written, but he can only know who he is when the creators get into the creation and tell him who he is. And that's because de facto, the creator, creators are not inside its creation. This is why when people say, I don't see any evidence of God around here. I don't, you know, show me proof for evidence of God. That's a ridiculous claim. Because if God is the creator of all things, he's not going to be found in any particular part of the universe unless he wrote himself into creation. And by the way, artists do do this. Like Dante in the Divine Comedy wrote himself in. Chaucer. In Canterbury Tales, wrote himself in. Uh, Stan Lee of Marvel often would write himself into comics and into their movies. And this is, if you want to, you can Google this. Look up uh, artists who wrote themselves into their, their artistry. And there's, it hap- there's sort of this, this, if you build something and make something, you kind of want to get inside of it. You want to do something about it. And that's exactly what the incarnation is saying to all of us. It's the moment when God wrote himself into history to do something about it. And so today, if you're not a Christian, or even if you are a Christian, I want you to try to memorize verse 35, because this is the proof. If anybody says, well, Jesus was just a really nice guy, he was just a very moral teacher. No, no, no. Go to verse 35 and say, that's impossible to make that claim, because this verse is saying that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity and the most important event in all of human history is the incarnation. And if that's true, then the most important thing for you and I to do in our lives is to get in touch with this individual and orientate our lives around this experience. And I guess before we move on to the next thing, the question I want to ask myself is, am I really doing that? How's my track record? Or have the concerns and the cares of this world gotten in the way of me seeking to know him and to see him? Are you and I, are we too busy to care? Are we thinking about, you know, lunch right now? Are we, what, what is actually going to allow us to be individuals and people of the promise of the incarnation? 
And is it actually active in our lives? First point, that's the promise. Now, secondly, the problem. It's one thing in verse 35 to make an assertion, here's the promise. The problem with the incarnation is how do you live it? And Mary had to live it. And if you don't mind, I'd like to make a list of the things that affected her because she lived the incarnation. Number one, it meant a lifetime of being misunderstood. It meant a lifetime of her husband, her family, her community, not understanding her. I don't, I, I've, I've tried to, again, put myself in her shoes. Being misunderstood might be the, one of the most frustrating things that could ever happen to you because it means nothing that you can do will fix it. That the people who misunderstand you, you, can, you can't dissuade them. You try to argue against them, but the reputation, their view on you won't change. They have an impression, and it's maddening. It's unjust. It's not right. But she now, forever, from this moment, is going to be known in her community as the, the girl who got pregnant and claimed that it was a virgin birth. You can kind of almost hear the person like, oh, there goes that crazy Mary. Remember how she kind of still holds that idea that she has this garbage excuse that it was because that she was a virgin that got pregnant? Try to put your—I mean, anytime she went to a store or went into the, into the town square— she, the incredulous eyes would see her and would just not believe her and, 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 and mock her and sneer at her. I think all of us have felt the experience of being misunderstood before by like someone or, some, or a few people. Imagine being misunderstood by everyone for all of time. That's Mary. That's the first thing that happened to her. Secondly, Deuteronomy 22. Deuteronomy 20, 22 is the, the, if you were... In this culture, it was a capital offense to, to have adultery. It was punishable by death, which means the incarnation to her did not just mean uh, being a village outcast. It, if she carried this baby, it might mean it will end in her own death. And after the baby's born, she could at any time, all it would take would be for a few people to drag her to the town square and have her executed. What would it be like to live every day going, today maybe might be my last day? Three, eight days after Jesus was born, so they presented Jesus at the temple. This is uh, Luke chapter 2, verse 35. And as they pre they're presenting Jesus at the temple, this, this man named Simeon shows up and says uh, this word to them and says, this baby is going to be a sword who will pierce your heart, Mary. Not a great word, but basically it's saying you're going to have a hard life. This baby's going to bring a hard life in, in, into your life. And that's exactly what happened because immediately they had to flee the area that she grew up in, the, the, the place that she only had ever known. She had to leave because Herod created an edict to destroy all firstborns. And so not only is she the most misunderstood person, now she has to know and live with the burden that other people's babies, her friends and family's babies were being killed because of hers. That's awful. And yet, because of this verse, this is the moment in history when all of her hopes, all of her dreams, all of the ways that she thought her life should actually go and could have gone ended because of the incarnation. So hopefully now you may be seeing the problem here, right? The problem of the incarnation, the problem that is found here is that if it's true, then you can't leave as you are. It's not business as usual, because if God broke into history the idea that there is a way that your life has to go according to whose plan, your plan, if, 
if God is breaking into creation, that means he can break into your plans for how you think your life should actually go. It did exactly that for Mary. And you know what? I promise you it's doing the same thing for you. Do you think that, how do I put this? Did I ask for my dad to be dying of cancer? Did you ask for the injuries and hardships and, and circumstances that have come into your life? Is that the way that you wanted your life to actually go? I promise you that no, we did not ask for that. But if the incarnation is true, then there is more to life than how you think your life should go. There is more to life than folks getting some money, living in New York City, making enough, have a happy life, retire, and then die. There's more to life than that. There is more to life than how I think my life should go. And I don't, I personally don't know why evil and suffering continues to exist when I have a good God who's all-powerful and all-loving. I, I personally don't know, but, but if you and I have a God big enough to enter into creation to do something about it, that means you also have a God big enough that might have reasons and ways and plans and cares that I can't quite understand and I don't quite know. That's what we have here. And that's what the incarnation is calling us to. And in Mary's case, she was called to a much harder life than she probably would have asked for. And in your case, you're probably being called to a much harder life than you would have asked for. So the question then is, is are you up for it? Was Mary up for it? Because how was she going to be able to say, you know what? You're, verse 35, here's how your life's going to go. And she said, sign me up. I'm here for it. Look in verse 38. This is how she says it. In 38, she says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. That is a beautiful statement if you let yourself dwell on it. Let me say it again. Behold, let it be to me according to your word. I know, as a 14-year-old, I never would have said something like that. But she was able to essentially say, let it be. I don't know what's going on. I don't get this. I don't understand it, but let it be. Um, there's that 80s uh, movie, uh, Princess Bride, where Wesley to hit, always says to uh, the love of his life, he always says, as you wish, as you wish. You know, you get me, help me do this as you wish. I, I feel like this statement, let it be, is very similar, because we can basically say it to anything, I don't have to have it all figured out. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know how it's going to happen, but I trust you, so let it be. Let it be. I think Mary's very different than how I would respond. When, it, when bad stuff happens to me, you know what the first thing I say is? How's this going to affect me? What's the cost-benefit analysis? What's gonna, how's it going to work? How do I fix this? How do I, you know, lessen the pain in my life enough to make it? And she's saying, let it be. How could she have that? I think she doesn't know how it's going to work out, but somehow she knows somewhere in the back of her mind that it's going to work out. And you say, well, how does she have that presence of mind? I think it's because somehow she knew, and she was told earlier that she's, going to, that she's overshadowed, that she's covered, that she's cared for, that she's favored, and she's going to be taken care of. Which means, I'm convinced if you actually knew that, if you let that hit you, that you could too be transformed into beings that could handle anything thrown your way. Because look, go back to Mary. Hey, Mary, you could be killed for adultery, Mary. Let it be. Hey, Mary, you could be divorced 
and never be remarried and never have an income stream for the rest of your life, let it be. Your husband might never actually quite ever understand you or, un- or know or really fully believe you. Let it be. Some of you right now in this room, you wish that you were married. You wish that you uh, could be married, but you, you're not because the Bible says to, to marry Christians only, and there's good reasons for that. That's a whole, whole other sermon, but there's good reasons for that. But you aren't then, and so the question is, is can you, not just today, but every day, say, let it be. Some of you are in marriages that are not the easiest marriages that are pretty hard. Can you say, let it be? Whatever's going on in our life, let it be. I believe that Christians have to realize that if, we, if we're going to let ourselves live the incarnation, that means suffering is going to come into our lives. It did for Mary, and you know what it means today? It means it will for you. So, if you're not a Christian today, and you're at all considering this, considering living the incarnation, you have to know people will look at you and say, what got, what got into him? What got into her? Why are they spending time that way? Why are they acting that way? Why are they changing their actions and their priorities to spend time on the things that they're spending time on? And the answer is, is will you, can you, are you ready for answering like Mary, let it be? I think the way to do this, the la- last point here, the only way that you can be able to say that phrase is through the power of the incarnation. The thing that you're going to be able to, you're going to say, well, that's, that's nice, Mike, but how do I actually do that? Mary was content in all things, not knowing everything. What will allow us to do the same thing? Go back to, see, she's able to say this in verse 38. I think the answer is because of what the angel said to her right before in verse 37. But in our text, it says, for nothing will be impossible with God. That's the power. In other translations, they, the, the translations say, no word from God will ever fail. Let that, again, sit with that for a second. What is being claimed here? The angel's making a huge claim. He's saying that if God is going to do something, it's going to get done. That if God sets his mind to something, incredible things are going to happen. Virgin births, the healing of the weak and the lame and the blind, the restoration of creation. And so Mary, for her, she gets the greatest honor ever possible on a human to be the caretaker of the caretaker of creation. And yet it's not going to be easy. It's going to be hard. Nobody's going to believe you. Nobody's going to understand you. And yet you're going to be one of the most important people ever. And somewhere, I have to believe in her mind, she was probably saying, Who? I'm a 14-year-old, peasant, illiterate, teenage, unwed mother. And yet God favors her and says, I'm going to put you at the end of my lineage. And by putting her name into his genealogy, essentially what Jesus is saying is, if nothing is impossible with God, even for Mary, then know it, nothing is impossible for God, even for you. That means if he can do this with Mary, the same can happen for us. You see, Mary had favor. Earlier in this text, the angel originally approaches her and says, greetings, O favored one. Some translations say, O blessed one. It's the, the Greek word for grace that you have been graced, that you have been given grace. And if you have been given this grace, the incarnation ceases being this intellectual exercise of what's actually happening here and allows it to be a lived experience in your life. 
It becomes real. It becomes tangible. It becomes life. God actually with us. That's what Emmanuel even means. What if, here's the thing. What if, we're New Yorkers here. We want to know how it all works. What if we got, we were less caring about how it all worked, how the incarnation worked, how did the Trinity worked, how does three in one work, and we just sat with, and if we really knew God was with you, that God was for you, that God loved you, what if we knew of God's love? What if the very worst thing in the world could be to you that you didn't believe in God's love? What if God's love was so around you overshadowing you, in you, and through you, that you would be protected from needing to know all the answers. I think one thing, as the older I get, the more and more I realize nobody has it figured out. You know what? What if I didn't need to have the answers? And what if we stopped waiting until we had them? Because we never will, fully. Instead, let's let the awe and the wonder of the incarnation wash over us, where the unbreakable becomes breakable where the, the unshakable becomes shakable, where the, where the invulnerable becomes vulnerable. That's the moment that's happening here, that God enters into creation and the glory revealed through it is the unkillable becomes killed for you. Because when the one who should never die does, it's that inflection point when we say, whoa, for me, to me, for me, that's what the incarnation does. Let's back up. Stories. Why are we all suckers for happy endings and, all, and stories? Why do we like the, it's a, it's a very tried and true paradigm where there's some brokenness, there's some antagonist, there's a climax, the hero, the main individual isn't able to pull it off, dies, it looks like it's all over, and then at the very end, there's a greater good that comes. Why is it that Gandalf sacrifices himself Old Yeller dies, Mufasa dies, Spock, Dumbledore, John Coffey in the Green Mile, Will Smith, I Am Legend, Dobby, Prince, Primrose Everdeen, Tris Pryor, Rufio, Jon Snow, Obi-Wan Kenobi, the Iron Giant, Aslan, Superman. I mean, this is not an exhaustive list, but <laughs> why do all those stories have the hero's death, and yet they hit us and I think they hit us because they gave up their lives for the lives of others. And those are many pictures then of the incarnation point. This is, by the way, the thing that converted C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis said, wait a second, he loves stories. What if all the stories of the world are pointing where the, where the hero dies by losing, saves the lives of others by giving up his own life? What if those stories are vague images of the true story? What if they're pointing to it? That means then all sad but happy endings are trying to point to the true sad happy ending. When Jesus broke into history and broke the old narrative that death wins. Folks, you and I are all on a story right now. And right now, the ending is death wins. And yet what the incarnation is trying to say to us is there is a happy ending and it's not fiction, it's real. And it's that the world will be redeemed. That the brokenness that we see and feel is actually a vague shadow. 
that there is light after darkness, that there is a rainbow after every storm, that there is a tidal way of joy and love that every Christian right now can access with a happy ending forever and ever. And that means, if that's true, friends, that means whatever your stories are, right now, however bleak and dark they look, there is hope for the ending of your story too. And it might be dark, you might not see a way out, You might not know how it's going to end, but the incarnation like Mary will allow us to say today and tomorrow and the next day, let it be. Let it be. This is it. I don't fully get it. I don't know why things are happening the way they're happening, but you are doing something new here, and I'm, I'm up for it. Let's do it. Last thing I'll say is this. One thing we haven't been able to point out, if you look at the genealogies, Go back to that whole list. And it ends with Joseph, right before Mary, it ends with Joseph, the son of Jesse. Joseph is Mary's husband. But the virgin birth means that Jesus didn't come from Joseph. But if the Messiah is supposed to be in the lineage of David and connecting to the whole rest of the lineage, how is that possible if Jesus was was the virgin birth? The answer is the only way that Jesus could have actually been a descendant of David is to be adopted by Joseph, which means somehow Joseph at some point had to say, you're my son, Jesus. And if that incomplete, improper adoption was good enough for the Son of God to actually be now inside and fulfilling all of the Old Testament prophecies, that he actually is the true and better David now because of Joseph's adoption of him, what if you and I actually owned our adoptions? as true sons and daughters of the Most High God. If it was good enough for Jesus, knowing that it's good enough for us. The slights of the world, come what may. The tragedies that have happened and will happen to you, they don't have the final say in your story. Death, death is just entrance into life now with him. Maybe you're winning that life. Maybe things are all great. Maybe you're having a comfortable, lovely life. Guess what? Those are gifts from God, not from you. And if we let this hit us, friends, this changes everything. The incarnation, you say, I want to change. I want to be different. You can only do that if you let this be the center of your life. It will reprioritize your time. It will reprioritize where you give your money. It will reprioritize who you hang out with, how you run your life, how you see life. Last point is this. If the incarnation proves God wants to come to you, what are you doing to come near to him? I think the incarn- you say, where's God? God is here. He wants to be with you. He's willing to enter into his own creation for you. What are you doing to get near to him? Maybe you don't even know where to start. Start with a very simple prayer. Just say, dear Jesus, I haven't talked to you a lot. Maybe never, but I'm here now. Will you listen to me? And the incarnation saying, Of course I will. I want to get near to you. And then perhaps we can start by saying, like Mary said, let it be, Lord. Let it be. How do you want my life to go? Friends, if you're willing to say that phrase, Lord, how do you want my life to go? Then you're ready to say, when you say that prayer, you're ready to come closer to him. Are you ready for that? Let's get near. Because he's here for it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Incarnation is so mysterious. It's all here, verse 35, and yet, <laughs> what does this mean? It means that you're, you are not leaving us. 
you are not abandoning us, that you are going to do something about it. And we know later, through the death and resurrection, Father, you have accomplished and paid and made amends for the brokenness that we have caused and for the brokenness others have caused on us. Let us make this center of our lives. Turn our hearts and minds towards you and all that we do. We pray these things in your name. Amen.